So, good morning. <laughs> um, I think almost everybody in the ro- room knows who I am, but there's a couple who may not. So, my name is Jessica Wilkinson, and I've been a part of this church for 23 years. And uh, I have three kids that have been raised in this church, and my husband, Ron, who uh, you usually see with the camera in his face if he's, if he's not back in the AV room. Um, but, uh, and uh, I've taught for years in this church um, as a, in the classroom setting, but uh, this will be the first time from here. So, you know, it was probably about nine months ago I was talking to Scott, and he asked me, he said, would you ever be interested in preaching? And I answered without any hesitation, no, absolutely not. <laughs> um, then a few months later, we were, we were doing the planning for the Corinthians class, and he brought it up again, the idea of my teaching or preaching um, as an introduction to the class. I, I told him I didn't think it was as good of an idea as he seemed to think it would be. <laughs> uh, and, um, but I, I would think about it. And then I went home, and ideas just started pouring in for, for a sermon. And I thought, oh, okay, God, well, because I'm not very good at this, so how about this instead? No, this. Okay, how about this instead? No, this. And so I started writing it out, and... Um, I, in one of the emails back and forth with Scott about the logistics of the class, there was somewhere in there, there was like, if you really want me to do the sermon, I'll do it. But we, we came up with something different, and I thought, oh, I am off the hook. <laughs> See, God, I didn't need that at all. And I set it aside. Uh, then a few weeks ago, talking to Scott again about how the class is going, and I was going, I was talking about the things in 1 Corinthians that as I have kind of literally marinated in it over the last year or so preparing for the class, that, I, that excited me and that I was excited about teaching. And when I finished talking, he just kind of leaned back in his chair and looked at me for a minute. Finally, he said, so when are you preaching? So here I am, because then I had to admit, well, there's actually something half written. Um, <laughs> so... Um, anyway, uh, so for first, uh, the context of the book of 1 Corinthians um, takes place about five years after uh, Paul planted the church in Corinth. You'll remember when, as we were going through Acts, in Acts 18, Paul visits Corinth, he plants the church there. This is about five years later, he's in Ephesus now, and there's a series of letters going back and forth between Uh, him and the Corinthian church. And we don't have all of those letters, and so this is truly one of the difficulties of this book is you're jumping into the middle of a conversation, and even then, you're only hearing one side of it. So, um, but I want us to start this morning near the beginning of the letter in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation just because I think it's, it's easier to understand as you're listening, but you can also follow along on the screen. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. 
Through him, God has enriched your church in every way with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says and he's invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So there's a few things that I'd like you to notice in this passage. First of all, God has given them gracious gifts. He says he's enriched them in every way. And he calls out a couple of those. He calls out their eloquent words. So they had good speakers. These were speakers that people would want to come and hear. Um, I kind of picture the Corinthian church as maybe almost like our modern-day megachurch with the popular pastor that everybody wants to come and listen to. They have knowledge. They are well-versed in the scriptures. Academically, they're doing great. Um, And they're eagerly waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, he's given them a job to do. Um, And this is what they've been given the gifts for. If you look at this last sentence in this verse, he says, he has invited you into partnership with his son. And in your Bible, the word partnership may say fellowship. The word there is koinonia. And if you've been around Bible study for very long, you've heard this word. Um, we, it's usually described as fellowship, as community, sharing, living in unity. But in ancient Greek texts, it was also used to describe a business partnership. So you can think of it as fellowship with a mission. So we have been called into fellowship or partnership with Christ to perform a mission. So the rest of 1 Corinthians, Paul spends addressing issues in the church that would prevent them from being effective in this mission. So I want us to look this morning at what our mission is. And in a lot of ways, we've been looking at it already. In fact, uh, the last sermon that Scotty preached before he went on vacation, uh, he made this statement, and I put it down in my notes because I liked how he said this. He said, we are sent into the world to be agents of hope. So that is one way of looking at our mission. Second way of looking at it is we can find in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. He says for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. This verse is a direct reference and almost an exact repeat of a statement that God made to Moses back in Exodus in chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, where he tells Moses that if the Israelites would obey him and keep his covenant, then they would be his own possession among all the nations, 
and they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? If you look at what a priest did, the function of a priest, they mediated between God and people. They interceded on behalf of the people, and they acted as messengers of God, teaching the people what it meant to follow him. So a kingdom of priests would be a group of people that are demonstrating to the world around them what God is like and what it means to follow him. That was Israel's mission, and as we see in 1 Peter, that mission has been now given to us as believers as well. So there was a third way that I wanted us to look at our mission, and this is, uh, Paul talks about it later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 9, and this is where we'll spend some time. So chapter 9, verses 19 to 27 he says, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring Christ those, to Christ those who were under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I don't ignore the law of God, I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are dis disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So Paul describes his mission as doing everything I can to save some, so that I could do everything to spread the good news and to share in its blessings. So how many people have been watching the Olympics over the last couple weeks? It's, it's kind of fun. Um, you know, this is maybe the one time that I pay attention to sports, and it's always interesting uh, to, to see the different sports, things that I didn't even realize were an Olympic sport. Uh, I was browsing through the on-demand choices last night and the, you know, table tennis, um, equestrian dressage. Who knew that, you know, that was an Olympic sport? I had to look it up to even know what it was. Um, <laughs> and who watches water polo when it's not the, during the Olympics? You know? But uh, anyway, the Olympics actually originated in Greece. 
And um, it, so on this map, it's, it's not shown, but the Olympics started in the t before Christ in the southern part of Greece, in that bottom, like, claw-like peninsula. And Corinth, where Paul is writing to, is up there in the northern part of that peninsula. And they actually, there was a famous athletic competition near Corinth as well. You'll see Isthmia there on the map. They held what were known as the Isthmian Games. And I managed to say it, that was good. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they held the Isthmian Games the year before and the year after each Olympics. So it's not surprising that Paul would draw on imagery from you know, these games that would be so familiar to the Corinthians. Although if you've read Paul's letters, he uses sports imagery a lot. I kind of think he was a sports fan himself. Anyway, uh, he, he talks about the athletes run to win a prize that'll fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So in the Olympics, as they're competing in Tokyo, they're competing for the gold medal. And they're putting everything into it. You watch just the highlights of the competitions where um, it's the finals. And the winner is just, I watched the 100-meter the women's uh, sprint, uh, that final. And the woman who won it, she set a world record. And she was just, you could just see how ecstatic she was at the end. And she kind of fell to the ground. And, you know, it, it, it was, it, it took everything she had. And it, and it was a big deal. And that's for a gold medal. In the Isthmian Games, they competed for a crown that was made from the wild celery plant. And I did look it up. It's a smaller, more flexible plant than what I think of when I think of celery, in case you were trying to figure out how they made a crown out of celery. <laughs> um, but what prize are we running for? Is it our own salvation? I don't think so, not in this context, because our salvation is not earned. It's not something we have to run to win. It's a gift, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of, none of us can boast about it. I think instead, the prize that Paul's talking about has to do with the execution of the mission. And when we think about what that could be, I mean, earlier in 1 Corinthians, he talks about that we are, we will be rewarded in heaven for the quality of our work. But I think it's even bigger than that, because I think it's more seeing the impact of the people around us, seeing them find, people we care about, find what we as believers have already found. And I think it's easy to forget what's at stake and why we need to be so focused on this mission. So I want us to look this morning at the stakes for the people that we are trying to reach. I think it's going to change our approach. The first, forgiveness, right? 
So I consulted the Bible dictionary for the, the definition. <laughs> Forgiveness is God's pardon of the sins of human beings. We look at Acts 10, 38a and 43. He says, and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. The gospel tells us that forgiveness can be ours. Without the gospel, we get stuck in our feelings of shame and regret over our mistakes, and our failures. We have trouble moving on, but Jesus offers forgiveness, a slate that is wiped clean. Remember in Psalm 103, he describes the state of forgiveness. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Who do you know who is stuck in regret and needs to know that they can be forgiven. The second part of the stakes that we are racing for is redemption. The definition is deliverance by payment of a price, a ransom. In the New Testament, redemption refers to salvation from sin, death, and the wrath of God by Christ's sacrifice. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, he says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God, in the Old Testament, God talks about how he feels about Israel, who he redeemed. In Isaiah 43.1, he says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You were mine. If he felt that way about Israel, who he had redeemed, that's how he feels about us, who he has redeemed. He calls us by name. We are his such a contrast to the cancel culture that we see today, where if you mess up, if you say something or do something that I consider reprehensible, then even if it was 20 years ago, you're no longer worth my time or my attention. So who do you know that needs to be ransomed from a life characterized by their mistakes and given a second chance? Who do you know that needs to be held close by the Savior and hear him call them by name? The third thing that is at stake for the people we love, and I apologize, I couldn't shorten this definition any longer or anymore, but uh, it's reconciliation. The process by which God and man are brought together again the Bible teaches that God and man are alienated from one another because of God's holiness and man's sinfulness. Although God loves the sinner, it is impossible for him to not judge sin. Through the sacrifice of Christ, man's sin is atoned 
and God's wrath is appeased. Thus, a relationship of hostility and alienation is changed into one of peace and fellowship. In 2 Corinthians, we read, And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Back to our mission again. Without Jesus, humanity has cut itself off from God. They're alone in their struggles with only other flawed humans to look to for help. Jesus offers reconciliation with God, a restored relationship with a loving Father who is always there, who always has the right answer. Who do you know who struggles with feelings of consuming loneliness, who feel that they have no one other than themselves to depend on? And finally, eternal life is at stake. John 3, 16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Left to our own devices, we are headed for eternal death. There's no sugarcoating it. But Jesus offers eternal life. Who do you know who needs eternal life. So if this is what's at stake, how do we run to win? Let's go back and look at what Paul um, was saying at the end of chapter 9. He says, don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So what does it take for an athlete to win? First, successful athletes Say one more, Eric. Um, successful athletes consult with good coaches. We're left with the best coach possible. We have the Holy Spirit, right? John 14, 26. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. And in Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Even though we have the best coach, we probably also have the least consulted coach, as uh, so many times we're guilty of neglecting uh, the regular practice of prayer, maybe especially prayerful listening to where we're just quiet for a moment and listen to what the Spirit has to say to us. So the second thing that a successful athlete has is intention. They're in, 
most athletes who make it to the Olympics started competing in their sport as children. They trained for several hours a day, often six days a week, for years. They're intentional about their nutrition, getting enough rest, about their mental and emotional health. In short, everything in their life is, revolves around preparing for the competition. Contrast that with how many of us approach our mission, and this includes me. Often, we try to live our lives first, take care of our own spiritual health second, and then, if there's any time and energy left, we start to look outward to see how we might spread the gospel. If an athlete approached their sport in that way, they would not expect to win. So why should we? Um, if that's our approach, how do we think that we're going to have any impact on the community of Hillsboro? And it takes time, and it's not easy. I was really pleased. Yes, this isn't in my notes, but I got to say, I was really pleased yesterday to see we had seven people from this church in the Love Inc. seminar. Um, and, and it was great, because that's adding tools to our tool belt. But it isn't easy. I, I have to tell you, there was probably several times throughout the week, I thought, nope, I'm not going. There's, my week kind of exploded on me, and I had a million reasons not to go. And not, not a single person would blame me. I was like, no, the, and I'm not trying to uh, you know, toot my own horn. I just simply um, want to acknowledge that it's hard. And it's, it, we have to be intentional about making time when it's not convenient, about doing the things that will equip us for whatever God has for us in the future. But am I trying to say that we should all quit our jobs and go into full-time ministry? <laughs> um, no. So if we look back at uh, chapter 7, Paul emphasizes that we should be content to stay in the situation we were in when God calls us. In fact, he, he says it three times in the space of seven verses. If we look at chapter 7, starting with verse 17, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. For instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it, and the man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now, for it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you're now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved by the world. Each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. So if he says it this many times <laughs> to a group of people that, near as I can tell, were asking about, hey, should I change this in my life? Now that I'm a believer, maybe I shouldn't stay in my marriage with an unbelieving spouse, or maybe I should change to this or that. He's saying, no, God called you in, 
this situation, remain in that situation. He's not saying we should stop all normal life in favor of full-time ministry. Rather, he's pointing out that our full-time life should be the launching pad for ministry. But it takes intentionality to be prepared when we see those opportunities arise. It's tempting to think that whatever situation we're in, is so, we're so limited in that situation that there's no opportunities out there. I'm gonna tell you a story um, about my grandmother, Grandma Elsie, <laughs> who uh, this story just brought home to me how God can use us in any circumstance, no matter how limited we may think we are. So Grandma Elsie was raised as a Kansas farm girl, very active woman, happiest when she's building something or working in the garden or out with her horse, whatever, (laughs) right? I I don't know that she could sit still. (laughs) In fact, when they um, bought a house in town, the very first thing she did was got up on the roof and re-roofed it. Made the neighbors very nervous, but they didn't know Grandma Elsie. She lived to be 101, but as she aged, her body started to betray her, and she started losing, you know, strength in her hands, and she couldn't do the things she was used to doing, but didn't get her down. She just grabbed a wrench and kept it nearby, so if she needed to open something or turn something, she had her wrench. And I remember uh, my, my, grand, my paternal grandfather, so on the other side of the family, at that about that same time, he was starting to, to decline with Alzheimer's, and he was having a really tough time with kind of some of the loss of his abilities. And I remember sharing with Grandma Elsie the trouble that Grandpa was having. She says, oh, you just need to tell him he needs a wrench. That <laughs> solves everything. <laughs> but... Uh, Anyway, as time went on, eventually she ended up in a care facility where her life was her bed and her recliner. And that was where she lived her life for several years. And she embroidered and she crocheted for a lot longer than I thought she'd be able to. But eventually even those abilities went away. And it, you start thinking, God, what are you doing? Why, what purpose is it for her to live her life in this recliner, this woman who's been so active for so long and who wants nothing more than to just go home to be with you? And one day one of her uh, caregivers came in and was working with her and said, Elsie, how do you stay so happy all the time? Why, how can you always be smiling? And Grandma Elsie says, it's Jesus. And she told her about Jesus. She encouraged her to read the Bible. She gave her a daily bread pamphlet. And I don't know what the caregiver thought. For all I know, she was probably humoring her. But I also don't know what those, how those words may have stuck and may have planted seeds. And I thought, even now, even when it seems like she can't do any of the things that she's spent her whole life doing, God is still using her because she's aware of the opportunities and she's taking advantage of the opportunities that come in 
before. So the third, the, yeah, the third thing uh, that athletes do is they have to pay attention. At the end of chapter nine, in that passage that we were reading, you notice Paul says that he disciplines his body like an athlete. Training, it's okay, Eric, we can stay where we're at, but uh, discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. When he talks about disqualification, I don't believe he's talking about losing his salvation. Remember, we already talked about that's a gift. It's not something he earned. I think he's talking about the loss of the success of his mission and of the heavenly reward and blessing that would result. We've seen in the media in recent times how a lapse in discipline can have disastrous consequences for an athlete. A couple months ago, uh, an hopeful Olympic runner, Shelby Houlihan, who had hoped to make the Olympic team this year, was banned from competing for four years after she tested positive for a steroid. Now, I don't know for sure what happened, but she, her claim is that the steroid got into her system after she ate a pork burrito she got from a food truck here in Beaverton. And she's banned from competing for four years and she missed the Olympics, presumably because of a burrito. <laughs> That's sad. <laughs> um, Shikari Richardson was another one who in the time trials in Eugene back in June, she won the 100, women's 100 meter, but then she was later banned from racing for a month, and so was missed the Olympics, because she tested positive for marijuana. She took the marijuana in an attempt to deal with the death of her biological mother. That one decision cost her a trip to the Olympics. So what does a lapse in discipline or attention for us mean for our mission? It means we may not see that opportunity in front of us. We may not be prepared to handle the opportunity that prepares us. Now, I don't believe that, I mean, I do believe that God will find another, he will accomplish his purposes. He has told us that. So there is another way of reaching that person but he will do it without us, and we lose out. It reminds me of the story of Esther. And if you remember, Esther was, through several circumstances, had become queen of, queen of Persia. She was a Jewess. She hid her background. The, nobody in the royal court knew that she was a Jewess. Her cousin who, or uncle who had raised her told her of a plot that was being um, put together to destroy the Jews. And he, told, he tells her, we're, we're familiar with verse 14 of chapter 4 in Esther, the end of it, but listen to the beginning of what he tells Esther. He says, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. 
but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And so we know she, she put her life at risk and she went to the king and, and she accomplished her mission. Um, but the point is, God would have accomplished it without her, but she would have been the loser. I have just one final thought. The runners on the USA Olympic team, they had to win their spots at the time trials in Eugene. We don't have to compete to make the team for our race. When we gave our lives to Jesus, that won us our spot on the team. But now what are we gonna do with it? Are we gonna waste it? Are we gonna spend our Olympics wandering around on the scenic tour, taking in the sights? Are we gonna meander casually around the track in whichever direction seems right at the time? Or are we going to run to win? Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would help each of us to remember what mission you have given us and what's at stake. Lord, when we look at the people that we come into contact with every day through the course of our lives, Lord, may you give us eyes to see what they truly need and give us eyes to see the opportunities that you give us. May you give us the determination to do what's necessary to be prepared so when those moments come, we're able to follow up and take action. I just pray that you would help us to live our lives intentionally, always in view of doing what we can to save someone. Lord, I just thank you that you have created good works for us to do. You have made us for a purpose. You've invited us to participate in a mission and you equip us along the way. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.